Welcome to the podcast. Information, photos, blogs, and more. In your car, at work, at home, on your smartphone. Find a quiet moment, put some headphones on. Is it just me that thinks this is like the best news in ages? I don't know what happened, but I fell in love. The creators and hosts of Sky's Entertainment Backstage podcast. Are you awake, Stevie? He's like, call me Ben. I don't think you can accuse it of being glamorous. And I said, I'm not going to call you Ben Benedict Cumberbatch. <laughs> I'm joined by the woman of the hour, Jodie oh, Comer. How much fun are you having teasing us all at the moment? You've got to laugh. Let's go! Welcome to Backstage, the film and TV podcast from Sky News. Coming up, we'll tell you everything you need to know ahead of the Oscars and we'll talk about Kate Winslet's return to TV. I'm joined today, as always, by the wonderful Stevie Wong and making his backstage debut. Round of applause, everybody, for Chris (laughs) Robertson. Hello, everyone. Hello. So good to have you here, Chris. Are you excited? Are you nervous? This is your huge debut on the backstage scene. I'm pretending we're in a junket now. I'm very excited. I feel like we should haze him, but I don't know what to do. I feel like this one of these. Like, I feel like, like uh, one of the shows we made him watch this week may have been a form of hazing. Oh, there we you go. <laughs> You're welcome. Welcome to backstage. We will get to that. First of all, very unlike us, uh, Stevie and I took a little break last week and had the week off, which meant we had a free week of viewing. So I very quickly wanted to ask Stevie, what, if anything, did you watch? I barely. I mean. It's so funny. It's like just when you have this whole week to just kind of catch up with everything, you end up just watching the most trashiest trash <laughs> on the planet. I don't know if you did the exact same thing, but like it was like if, if I didn't think about anything, I would just watch whatever that thing was, you know. And, and so a lot of drag race, yeah. a lot of just kind of just silly, you know. I mean, I even watched some some Dancing with the Stars from another country oh, at one point. Nice. Yeah, I was just like that's how bored I was. But I I just needed something like brainless. So chewing so gum the, TV. Yeah, exactly. I watched uh, The Wolf of Wall Street in three parts as if it was like a miniseries and I thoroughly like enjoyed it. Because yeah. <laughs> <laughs> uh, I realised I'd never seen the whole thing before. So, um, oh. yeah, so I recommend that. If you want to rewatch maybe Wolf of Wall Street, uh, it's been a while. It's still a good watch. Um, yeah, just do it in three parts. It works. Nice. Um, right, let's start off then with the big news of the week it is of course finally finally going to be the oscars taking place overnight on sunday our time so that is in the uk they are the actual ceremony is 1am till 4am and you can view it on sky cinema but there'll be red carpet and loads of other stuff happening from around 11pm so if you want to watch a bit before you go to bed you can still catch are you a little doing bit. any of this red carpet shenanigans well uh, i mean the the thing is we couldn't go over to la because of quarantining and things like that and um you know the with the london hub stuff is all still a bit tbc so um uh it's all a bit last minute uh but i certainly will be in a nice warm studio uh which is a relief because when it's overnight i don't know if i want to be on a cold red carpet i want to right. be in a nice warm studio please um and uh, not have to dress up and yeah kind of do it all from there so uh yeah very exciting being directed by uh steven soderberg who's 
really got a challenge ahead of him because, of course, the other award ceremonies have all seen big slumps in uh, in viewing figures, haven't they? So um, is he up to the challenge, do you think, first of all? Um, Chris, what do you think? Let's let's bring you right into to the mix of this. I don't I don't know is the answer. Oh, okay. Is my answer? Um, I do know that the you know the Golden Globes and the Grammys just bombed, and I would I would uh, I think a lot of it is to do with people not wanting to watch these rich people being able to do what they can't, which is getting in a room and celebrate things that they have no intent, like they they just can't relate to that kind of thing. Um, but also, like I think Zoom ceremonies. Yeah sometimes look a bit naff and they're not that bothered because it kind of takes the it, it takes the award ceremony ish stuff out of it i think so i i honestly don't know what the oscars are going to look like because no one knows what they're going to look like yeah uh, but, but I, I do think um it, 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 it might suffer it is interesting how they were like trying to spin this because like steven soderbergh he's a filmmaker and then they called the, the guest like uh, announcers the cast mate you know? <laughs> so, so like our cast includes brad pitt yeah. harrison fords and Dea. they keep talking about how it's going to be like a movie um i just Am can't I rolling right now <laughs> i can't picture it i really i really can't and i think it's i think both of those points are really valid chris i think the kind of the zoom thing which they're they're not doing they're saying no zoom and they might be you know they're going to have hubs maybe elsewhere where people kind of a show another show will be produced but there'll be no you know kind of peeking into nominees houses and things like that so that's not going to be there but i think the other thing is also true i'm not i'm not sure people have got a huge appetite to watch the rich and famous not having to play by the same rules as the rest of us i want to go and sit in a room and party with you know people i barely know kind of you know from from an, from the industry um and we can't do that so i yeah but the pressure is on because the oscars need the viewing figures it is part of the the money the the, the business of it all so um yeah i expect there's some uh, slightly sleepless nights going on right now uh, so we take a look at the um, nominations then. It's a great year for the Brits. Plenty of Brit nominees. In fact, at least one in every single acting category. And it's also uh, the most diverse lineup of acting nominations ever. So nine of the 20 nominees um, in the acting categories are from ethnic minority groups, which is a big old shift over from last year when only Cynthia Erivo was the only non-white actor that was nominated. And that comes, the Academy has spent quite a lot of effort in the last couple of years kind of expanding its voting body, trying to kind of get out of this um, Oscars so white controversy that it's been hit with. What do we, um, what do you think of the kind of the diversity of the list? It is an improvement, isn't it? And, um, and, and hopefully suggest things are moving in the right direction. I, I don't mind diversity. I think this is one of those things where, like, listen, you know, last year when it was just Cynthia Erivo, there were definitely performances from people of color who, like, deserve to be in that list. Mm-hmm. Um, I hate to say it, that this, even though we are diverse, I'm looking at this list and it feels like what's been going on in all the other award ceremonies. So, so nothing is really, like, oh, my gosh, shocking in terms of, like, who's getting nominated because yeah. these are the people that have been the players since the very beginning. Um, I do find it interesting that, like, something like Best Actress or even Best Supporting Actress, it's a free-for-all right now. And, like, there's been no, like, kind of real winner that's been, like, taking every single thing for the past, you know, couple of awards. And so I'm... That's kind of exciting. I I don't know what you guys are going to say about who you think is going to win, but, like... um, It's really exciting. Yeah, Yeah, let's let's get into it. So let's start with Best Actress, because I think that's arguably the most exciting. Um, In the running, we have Viola Davis for Ma Rainey's Black Bottom, Andra Day for the United States version 
versus Billie Holiday, Vanessa Kirby for Pieces of a Woman, Frances McDormand for Nomadland and Carey Mulligan for Promising Young Woman. Now, I would argue that the only real total shock of the the only person that I think, and it's not because it's not incredible performance, it is, I just haven't seen any narrative around her campaign. I don't think Vanessa Kirby will get it. But otherwise, it could go to any of the other four, four, couldn't it? And that just... That just so rarely happens at the Oscars. Who do you guys think might walk away with it? If you had to put your money down, Chris, let's start with you. My guess would be Frances McDormand. I think um, Nomadland is probably going to have a very good night. Yeah, uh, I agree. I, you know. I feel like she's she's kind of um, the easy runner, like like because obviously from the very first moment that this movie came out from from Venice, it's you know she was always like considered to be like the top tier of of, of this awards kind of conversation, but. I don't know. It's 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 weird. It's like I I I have a I I'm leaning towards like a an Andrew Day Carrie Mulligan upset. You yeah. know, like it's like one of those two. But then that could also be a thing because you remember all the votings like have to be. Um, you can choose your top two of, uh-huh. of of your nominees, and so if people are voting, you know, let's say Francis as like their number two, and they've chosen Andrew or Carrie as their number one, that means that Francis will definitely become number one because she had the most amount of votes. And so this is this is one of those things where be, based on like you know your choice, I, I don't know. It's it's an interesting thing, but I you know I I it'd be great if one of the others won, but like I have a feeling like Chris, it's going to be Francis. That's gonna well, it was Francis that won the BAFTA, of course, yeah. um, and uh, and that sometimes can be can be a bellwether for the Oscars. What tends to be more of a bellwether when it comes to the acting is the SAG Awards, and uh, Viola Davis went home with the uh, SAG for Ma Rainey. I I kind of think you can never discount Viola Davis. She's uh, she's so well loved by by the industry, by the Academy. And hey, it is a, a great performance in Ma Rainey. Yeah. You know, she physically and emotionally, you know, it's a real, it is a, a it do, I, I, I think it might as well. We often talk about this, sort of come down to which film the uh, the voting member has watched most recently. Frances McDormand in Nomadland, it might be quite a while since yeah. they've seen that. Um, and also, Frances McDormand doesn't, she doesn't do all the campaigning and, uh, yeah, you wonder kind of if she'll if she'll turn up because she certainly didn't bother zooming in for the Baftas. Um, so uh, <laughs> I wonder if if she's planning to go to the Oscars. I'm going to call it. I mean, I can't call it. I I actually really don't know on this, and I wouldn't even put a fiver on it. But I'm going to say Carrie Mulligan because I want her to win. I want her to take it. I think it's a great performance, and um, and and then it would be a British win. So that'd be nice, wouldn't it? Well, <laughs> when we come back next week, we can uh, yeah. <laughs> replay what we say. Yeah, definitely, definitely. Um, what, what do you think for the best supporting? Because obviously, it's it's an interesting one because you know um, everybody loves these performances, but there's really been no kind of front runner mm-hmm. in terms of who's picking up everything. And so we've got Maria Bakalova from Borat's subsequent movie film, Glenn Close from Hillbilly Elegy, Olivia Coleman from The Father, Amanda Seyfried from Mank, and Yu Jung Yoon from Minari. Yeah. And I mean, I would love Yu Jung Yoon to win because um, I think she's hilarious. And plus, what her speech <laughs> calling calling the Brits kind of snobby was hilarious <laughs> to me. And so yeah. that was amazing. And I need her to do another uh, award-winning speech uh, <laughs> for the Oscars. That'd be hilarious. Um, but what do you guys think? I mean, it's quite it's quite a, a big list of supporting actors. I mean, these are all people that you could put in um, a Best Actress category any other year, I suppose. Mm-hmm. Maybe except... Um, Maria Bakalova, who's relatively new. Um, I can't see 
Borat taking much um, <laughs> or anything like that. But I think I think um, you know, having not watched The Father yet, because it's not. No, a, we can't. It's really hard to watch in the UK. It's uh, yeah. Olivia Coleman is 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 always a good name to have in these kind of things, mm. um, and also she's just wonderful. Mm. Um, but without seeing the father, I can't. I, I don't really know what she's like in the father. She's she's really um, good in it. I mean, you know. But I hate to say it. It's like these other performances kind of overshadow what she does. She definitely is is a. I mean, obviously she's a wonderful actress. But I mean, it all goes to Anthony Hopkins' performance, and so she's kind of playing. She literally is supporting yeah. this kind of like powerhouse moment for this actor to do his thing. And so, um, I think she it might get lost in, in that sense. But yeah. I mean, only I mean, a couple Amanda of years Seyfried ago was, was, since she won. Best actress, of course, for the favourite. And mm. although that doesn't necessarily count her out, um, I do wonder if, yeah, I wondered if um, Amanda Seyfried might take it. Mank, of course, is the film going into the to the awards that um, that has the most nominations. And I can't see it winning in any of the big categories, except maybe, maybe Best Supporting Actress. Could you see Amanda doing it? I mean, when when the film first came out, that is what everyone was talking about. Her performance right. was what everyone was talking about. Now, I do feel the narrative has changed. I, I'm, I think I'm with you, Stevie. I'd like to see, and I think Yu Jung Young will take it, but I wouldn't be surprised if Amanda did. Right. Um, again, we shall see. Is there <laughs> any other like kind of uh, a category that you guys think are, are filled with like really interesting uh, options and, and then uh, that we should talk about? Um, well, I think um, I think uh, I'm guessing that we all sort of feel like director's probably going to go to Chloe Zhao, best picture's probably going to go to Nomadland. Um, I think probably supporting actor is just worth a quick mention. Although I think Daniel Kaluuya will win for uh, right. Judas and the Black Messiah, but because he is in that category with um, uh, Lakeith Stanfield, yeah, for also for Judas and the Black Messiah, which begs the question. Who is the lead in that film? If they're both the supports, <laughs> that, that is but anyway. true. <laughs> um, but uh, that aside, voting fraud aside, um, you, they, we do talk about vote splitting. So people that really love that film, uh, you know, if they might vote for one rather than the other, and then it kind of splits the vote in that category. I still think, to be to be honest, that Daniel Kaluuya will do it. He's he's kind of consistently won all the other awards coming into this, um, uh, and. You know, Sasha Baron Cohen could be a threat maybe for The Trial of the Chicago 7, but my money is on him actually taking the Adapted Screenplay Prize for Borat. I think that's where we'll see uh, mm. Sasha Baron Cohen on stage at the Oscars, or on stage, I say, you know, where, however they're going to pick up the awards at the Oscars on uh, on Sunday. In film form, apparently, this is going to be a movie of them. Like, I don't know. <laughs> do they have to go through like a horror maze to kind? Of, I, don't, I just need to see what this show is going to look like. And so, um, let's yeah, hope it isn't a horror. <laughs> <laughs> you know me and my horror films. <laughs> I want everything to be a horror film. <laughs> um, and you mentioned some of the presenters earlier. We've got uh, people that are going to be giving out the prizes: Brad Pitt. Uh, Harrison Ford, Zendaya, Laura Dern, Regina King, Joaquin Phoenix, Reese Witherspoon, Angela Bassett, Halle Berry. I mean, loads of really big names. Oh, and Parasite director Bong Joon-ho, who will hopefully bring the kind of uh, irreverence and uh, and kind of lightness that he did to, to last year's Oscars when he won that. I think probably the takeaway image everyone will remember from last year is, of course, when Bong got his Oscars to kiss one another and uh, and <laughs> everyone was like, we'd have done that. Uh, and it was great. So that they've said, yeah, there's so much, the because there's so much star power, the show's producers 
I've said there's so much wattage here. Sunglasses may be required. So I mean, it's so tacky. <laughs> it's so tacky. Yeah, it's not great. If, if not. the Oscars was, is the Oscars trying to put itself in for next year? <laughs> is that what? Is that that's what, probably what they're hoping for? Brad, <laughs> Brad Pitt's going to be next year's best actor. Uh, that's hilarious. <laughs> well, we shall see. So um, yes, if you can't get enough of Oscars build up and Oscars preview, check out the piece by Gemma Peplow on Sky News slash Entertainment. It's very, very good, and I'm not just saying that because she's a friend of the podcast it really is very good and it will tell you literally everything you need to know ahead of the ceremony um and uh, and get you all excited and we of course will reconvene and have a big debrief next week um when we can talk about well stevie and i will anyway talk about all the <laughs> things that happened and uh, and the the shock wins of the night if indeed there are any shock wins doubtful um, tbc tbc yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Let's move on to some reviews then. And we're going to start off with the uh, Mayor of East Town, which is on Sky Atlantic and is available now. The East Town Police Department received a call reporting a dead body in Creedham Creek. We've decided to bring in a county detective to assist with the case. How do you like working with my mom so far? We're just getting started out. Any tips? Lower your expectations. Should we do this outside? No. All right, let's go. Hey, hey, whoa, whoa, whoa. Mayor, what's what happening? She knows what's, what's happening, Tony. Okay. She knows. Mayor, All right, let me go. So this is Kate Winslet's return to TV a decade after Mildred Pierce. She plays Mayor, a detective living in a small Pennsylvania town. Everybody knows everybody. There's lots of sort of complicated intertwining relationships, some very open, some very secret. Uh, and she's investigating the murder of a young girl, but it soon becomes clear there's a lot more kind of happening. Also stars Guy Pierce, um, who was also in Mildred Pierce with Kate and um, Evan Peters, who I a little bit fell in love with in this show i just think he's really really good in this um and if you like sort of sharp objects and big little eyes this will be up your street i think so uh, listen i i'm a fan of shows that are are, are are very complex i'm not a big fan of the crime show which is what you're it's that's it's, so your game like claire like so this is, but i love a whodunit <laughs> exactly and and especially um but what what i think is is the magic of this show is is obviously the writing of brad inglesby and and even director craig zobel because what he does is um most murder shows let's use the undoing as like like a like a basis then yeah. they have a murder and everybody's like who's done it and everybody's like the you know the potential like like every corner is like oh maybe that's that's what but what this show does is is really fascinating because every single character is almost treated like they're the center of their own kind of like main storyline yeah and because of that um every actor that's involved are they're so talented this is like a really amazing group of of people who feel totally lived in it's part of pennsylvania like small town rural pennsylvania um Drugs are rampant. People are, you know, it's, 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 it's just everybody's in each other's business. It's just, it's a part of America that is not, it's not glamorous at yeah. all. Unlike the we, undoing, it's exactly. it's so not glam. It's not aspirational. And it's, at the center of this is this woman who kind of just steamrolls her way through this kind of detectiving that she's doing, but she's so broken inside that mm-hmm. she just carries all of her trauma with her. I, I, this is one of those, like, if you're going to do it, like acting class, master class kind of moments. This is the one to to take a look at because I mean we were only given what five episodes. Mm-hmm. There's seven total, um, and it's like every 
every episode you're looking at something really amazing that she's kind of giving and you don't feel like she's acting whatsoever she's like yeah. completely living this character of mayor um and it's i don't know i i i really really love this show right now so, so I'm, I'm a huge fan yeah yeah chris what about you uh unlike you guys i only had access to one episode um but i did watch it and first of all hbo and sky really know how to make telly i mean it's beautiful to yeah. watch isn't it? I mean, it's just absolutely stunning. And like you said, it's not a glamorous part of the US, but by the end of it, I was like, this is the sort of place I want to live. You know, it's... Really? Yeah, It's kind of like that small town picket fence kind of thing going on. Um, and I did really enjoy a really gritty yeah. Kate Winslet. And like you say, you can just tell she's just carrying everything with her, that everything's going on in her mind. It kind of just... It, she's just taking it with her throughout... I mean, I only watched the one episodes, um, but taking it with her through throughout that, you know, and um, I really like the scene where she's in the kitchen and she's just like drinking beer, putting cheese whiz on top of a cheese cracker <laughs> and things like that. And I just thought that's just so funny because she's clearly got something going on and that's the only way she can deal with it. Um, I also saw in there um, the guy that played uh, Roy in The Office and I and he plays a character that was previously engaged and I just feel like that's the only character he plays. He plays a character that was previously engaged. Um, but no, I thought it was. I thought it was a stunning piece of TV, uh, and I really can't wait. Oh, I can't wait for yeah. you to see episode two. Oh, it's... episode two. And you said Evan, Evan Peters. Yeah, yeah. Yes, so I think I, he so... joins in episode oh. two, and um, oh, he's big Evan Peters. Yeah. Fan. So he's just come off the back of One Division. Of course, I, I don't know kind of when these things are filmed, and, and it's just coincidence that he's going from one huge TV show into another huge tv show um but um i didn't watch one division sorry but um apparently this is a very different kind of role for him but he's he's so he's so good in it um and uh, and guy pierce is very is very good in it as well i think you're right stevie it is a bit of an acting masterclass. it's also as you mentioned chris they know how to make tv i mean talk about bingeable you get to the end of the episode and you're like oh my god i need to know what happens the kind of the little cliffhangers they leave it on they're quite subtle but they're absolutely brilliant in that you just are desperate to know it's what it's, happens it's, next they use they use tricks i'm i'm you know by by no means am i giving any spoilers but every end of every episode there's like a reveal and you're like yeah. what you know and you just kind of immediately want to like play the next thing and but what it does is it doesn't feel like um uh, manipulative at all it just feels like it's it's kind of natural and 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 they address it immediately in the next episode it's like these kind of really fascinating ways that they're you know and again you see kate just be like really and then she just goes towards like trying to figure out what that what yeah. the answer is for these things it's it's I don't think she's the best detective, mind you. Um, no, she, she's. she's... <laughs> well, that's, that's another reason why it's good because she's not the best detective, oh, and she's, she she's a hot mess. She's, yeah. yeah, she shouldn't be because she's like, yeah, in a big old mess. I just, um, yeah, I, I really, I mean, I kind of said, yeah, this is so up my street. I was always gonna like this, but I really did like it. But I checked, and everyone else is giving it four and five star reviews as well. So I'm definitely not off piece uh, on this one. This is also Kate Winslet also executive produced this and. This mind blowing. It's the first time she's produced something, which is quite impressive. in In Hollywood these days, it feels like in, you know actors get one movie under their belt and they kind of then start producing stuff because you know if you've got a name attached, it's easier to get things funded. And Kate Winslet sort of 
sat and, and waited for the for the right time. Um, I had a lovely chat with her. Imagine me being told I get to chat to Kate Winsler. I mean, pff, she's like up there A-list for me, you know, probably because of my age and the films I liked growing up and all that kind of thing. But my goodness, iconic. So um, we had a lovely natter. Um, but yeah, that was kind of one of the things that I, I had to ask about taking on sort of producing for the first time. You exec produced this as well as uh, starring in it. Does that allow you to sort of have a, a kind of a control and impact on the show that you wouldn't necessarily have as as an actor? De- definitely. And, and you know, I, I definitely would say I, w- I would use the word sort of contribution rather than control in a funny way, because, you know, it's all about collaboration. And I think just to be really considered in that team um, by virtue of the fact that I was an executive producer, you know, ju- it just felt very, very meaningful and timely for me this time in my life to be able to step into that position. You know, producing is a really different job to acting. And there's a reason why I've never done it before. And it's because I wouldn't have known how to. But after all of these years, you know, I have paid attention and I have learned and it did feel okay. Yeah, no, I think I, I would know how to do this a bit now. And, uh, and it, it has actually been really brilliant. And I'd say with Mare, it was almost necessary for me to be in that position because you know a cast and a crew like having a leader they like having someone who whom they feel is looking out for them and that was very much me so whilst I was playing that role I was also being that role for everyone around um, on set every day and uh and it goes on, you know, the edit is still happening now, you know, as each episode is getting ready for release into the world. And and I'm very much part of that process, too, and tweaking things and taking things out and adding things back in again. And, and I have just really loved it, like being that entrenched in something. Um, it has it's been it's been fantastic, actually. I've loved it. And Mare herself, she seems like, and you know, I'm no actor, you'll tell me, but she, she seems like quite a challenging character in that, you know, she's got this very specific accent. She's got the issues with her leg, it, um, not to mention all the emotional trauma she's sort of going through. Is she a challenge? Is she one of the, your more challenging roles that you've taken on? Yeah, it's the most challenging part I've ever played, definitely. Um, and I think that, that, that's, uh, that really is because I was playing her for such a long time. You know, I, I started preparing probably about five months before we were shooting and we started shooting in September of 2019 and I was 43. And by the time we ended up wrapping in December, I turned 45. So I'd held this character inside of myself for all of that time. And, you know, and at the centre of Mare is this real gut-wrenching grief and crisis, personal crisis that she is in and creating that level of trauma um, and sustaining it um, was very, really extremely hard. And actually, I found it quite hard sort of unraveling myself from that, which, you know, after all these years of doing this job, you know, you would think by now that I would have some decent systems in place <laughs> to cope with those kind of emotional separations from a character back into my own life. But I have to say on this one, I just haven't really been able to. So I'm still kind of like muddling through it in a way and and it sounds really strange but like just talking about the show and and kind of getting ready to like share it with the world is definitely kind of helping me a bit to just move beyond the experience of having played this role and sort of letting go of her in a funny way because she, she I really became you know it was like it was me and her you know for nearly 20 months of my life so it's uh it's definitely been uh, uh the most intense thing I've ever done um for all of those reasons, really. 
think a, a welcome return to TV, you know, a decade after Mildred Pierce. It's good to have her back. Do you think we'll see more from her now on TV? I, Do you think she's well, swapping over? I was, because I'm, I'm still watching the series and, and I have a weird, like, I would love to see Mare take on another case, you mm. know? And, and like, it's because this this is not based on a book. This is completely an original, like, kind of story written by Brad. Yeah. And, 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 and of course, he, he, he maybe sourced stories from the news and things like that. But... Um, there, there's just something very open about about like how if if there's another case in a nearby town or you know and like and so I I hope Mary can like kind of bring her brokenness to yeah. to, to solve another case if if uh, I mean I haven't seen the ending we none of us have gotten the yeah. final episode so I hope Mary doesn't die or anything like that yeah but we like, can't spoil uh, it because we don't yeah know. we don't know um, <laughs> but like if she doesn't die I wouldn't mind seeing more of Mare in the future because because yeah. these it, it'll be interesting to have these like event kind of miniseries of of based on this this woman who is just so real and and, and really, really watchable. It feels like, though, the Sky Atlantic, certainly, I can't speak for how it went down in the States, but they, with The Undoing, they had such a huge kind of hit in terms of talkability. You know, we revisited the last episode. Everyone was chatting about it. Do we think Mare's going to get that same kind of buzz? I think so. I, you know, my my my, because based on the fact that you know, I'm kind of now zipping through all all the screeners that we were allowed to to see. I mean, it has that uh, that watchability effect. I yeah. mean, one million people watch the the first, you know in HBO like in the states, and so um, these are really good numbers for them. And and if you remember, like shows like this, they just word of mouth wise, they just get bigger and bigger and yeah. bigger. So um, yeah, Chris, I think that's... HBO and Sky have a huge hit on their hands. As um, as the one of us who actually had to kind of get the first one and then wait for the second. Will you wait for the second? Do you think you'll carry on with Mare? Yes, because I love detective crime dramas. <laughs> because like you, they're just really... You, you get so invested yeah. in these things. You want to know. It kind of reminded me a little bit of Broadchurch. Yeah. yeah. Um, in the in the same vein, like you've got this kind of broken cop detective trying to solve a murder. Mm. It's the, if it's the last thing they're going to do... Um, it felt quite Broadchurchy, and I zipped through Broadchurch in about six, seven hours when I watched <laughs> it. Um, so I definitely will be returning to East Town. Yeah, well, Mayor of East Town, Sky Atlantic, and that's available now. Uh, let's move on then. Shadow and Bone on Netflix from April twenty third. The prize is one million Kruger. Bring me Alina Starkov. Am I a prisoner? All of Ravka is. Until you and I enter the fold and destroy it from within. So no pressure. Everyone is looking at me like I'm the answer. Bring the light. Again. The only thing more powerful than you or me. The two of us, together. So Shadow and Bone is based on this uh, trilogy of books called the Grisha Trilogy, uh, written by Lee Bardugo. Um, it is a huge, huge, like, YA smash. I mean, there are, like, a lot of lot of fans. To the point where um, when, they, when they knew that the show was being cast, um, the fans had figured out that a certain actress was following the writer and the creator of the series, and then they sussed out that it was possibly the actress that was going to play oh, the wow. lead of the show. I mean, this is yeah. So that's that's an interesting. So it's 
how do I explain this? Because there's a lot of plot here, and and I don't want to. And 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 as I'm like reading it out to you, I just I don't really understand it. I mean, it takes a while to kind of understand what's what's happening. Um, huh? It's set in a steampunky war torn world, um, and it. It separates. There's like this middle area called the fold, which it, no one wants to cross because if you go into this dark area, potentially monsters can rip you apart. Um, but yet, uh, a group of people decide to go through, and then miraculously, our 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 main lady uh, Alina, played by the awesome Jesse Maley, um, she uh, somehow emits some light and kills all these monsters, and then now everybody has decided that she's going to save. You know, well, now world. everyone wants a piece of her. Basically. They want a piece of her. They also think that she's possibly able to finally like break the fold, and then you know the worlds can kind of combine again, or who knows what they want to do. If, if even if they want the world to combine again, so she, people want to kill her. People want to. Well, it's very her. warring. I, it's very warring, isn't it? Not everyone wants to get back together. Ooh. Exactly. There you go. And so uh, somewhere in there, there's a bunch of um, Dickensian <laughs> crooks that also want to kidnap her because there's a one million, you know, Kruger kind of uh, like uh, uh, thing on, on on her head. And I mean, it's. I think on paper it's a little bit of a hot mess, and even yeah. actually the first episode, you're like, huh, what, "What's happening?" Um, and oh, wait, let me add that they're all wearing Russian outfits, so they're set in some kind of weird, like, like, uh, like Russian world where they're like wear all these coats and they have those big hats, and I just feel like they're <laughs> going to break out into dance at any point. Oh, and also, there's various magic goings on. So oh, yeah, some magic, people can so. like throw fire, and some people can like hold your wrist in a certain way and make you tell the truth and stuff. The, so these are the got, Grish? Grish yeah. Grishies? <laughs> Grishas? I don't want to... The Grisha. Grisha. Thank the you. Thank and you. And this is where Chris needs to step in and stop yeah. us from bungling anymore because he actually knows what he's talking oh, about. Oh, there you go. Why now, did I do this then? I mean, Chris, why did you step in? Chris, did you... Have you read the books or you just know about it? So, my partner is... I mean, this sounds ridiculous, but she's a massive reader. Um... This is like her favorite, like book um, series. Wow! Ever. And um, ever when we first. <laughs> I mean, yeah. I mean, wow. she, she loves it. I mean, she's just bought the new ones this week. Um, she thought this. She she when we first saw this was going to go on Netflix. She was so excited, and so I obviously let her watch it with me because it would be cruel. Yeah, not right. To. Um, and she says the books are different. Yeah. <laughs> so the crows who were like these Dickensian. This Dickensian gang who are just going to take any job for the money. Mm. They're they're in a different book. They're in, they, they don't meet okay until a bit further down the series. And um, the the first book is like all about Alina Starkov. Um, the show itself, I loved it. I, I thought it was great. Um, like you say, it's a bit complex and it does take you a little bit of time to work out what's going on. But you know, I, I, you've got to trust the show as well because Lee Bardugo, actually executive, produced it. So. You know, you might get some people saying, well, this is completely different to the books, you know, like with the Harry Potter films and Lord of the Rings films. But she actually made the TV show as well, um, which kind of brings a bit more authenticity. But I just thought it was great. Um, And I thought it was really, really nice to see such a diverse and young cast as well. I mean, Netflix are really good at making these young casts with um, them. You know, they're all going to go on to be stars. And, um, you know... 
it's hard to, it's hard to describe how how I feel about it in such a short amount of time. <laughs> I just thought it was, like you said, I, I can't stop saying I thought it was great. Well, here's here's um, a question: Did you finish it? Because because when we got yes, so you did. And how long did it? Yeah. And you know you know uh, full disclosure: I finished the series too, Claire. So so it was one of those things where I was like, I pressed play and I was like, mm, I don't really. That first episode is a little bit clunky because I was like, what's well, happening? Well, because they have to be there. The first episodes yeah. we talk about this all the time because they have to set stuff up. And for the uninitiated, I hadn't even heard of the books which just shows how out of blooming touch I am with everything. Um, I I knew nothing about this. And as a con- total newcomer, you, you, you have to have that clunkiness because I need it laid out to me. I don't know how this works and who these are and what this is doing here. But I agree, it, it does tend to mean that we do see this very often in these kind of dramas, that the first episodes are a bit clunky. That said... I did like it. I, re- nice. I'm, I'm I was going just going to ask. Yeah, yeah, I'm going to carry on. Yeah. Because we have watched a few of these, and Chris made a great point there about these kind of um, Netflix dramas where they bring in a, not completely unknown, but like a, a fair, you know, not a starry cast of young actors, um, and they're, you know, maybe on a, with an IP already existed. There's a fan base there, so perhaps you don't need that kind of stars to, to draw people to it. Um but I um, I thought this was one of the stronger ones. So recently we talked about um, like tribes of Europa and, and we talked. Yeah, the Irregulars, yeah. exactly. And um, none of which I was particularly taken with. But this, um, I think is instantly, it kind of grabs you. It's good. And uh, Jessie Mae Lee, um, I'd not, I don't think I've seen her in anything before uh, who plays Alina Stuckov. I thought she was very good. Um, later in the line, down the line, I think uh, Ben Barnes and Zoe Wanamaker turn up. So there are some sort of recognisable faces, but I just thought it was good. It looks so good, doesn't it? Like yeah, this world that they're in. I mean, I described it as sort of maybe steampunky. It's certainly that thing where some things are old and some things are, are quite modern. Um, but yeah, I, I thought it looked really, really good. And, and like, I liked all the, the kind of, uh, yeah, the Russian styling, as uh, as you said. And uh, and it, although it has got that magical element of like the monsters and the magic. There's even a that. school, mind you. There's even a place where she has to go and learn her, like, yeah. you know, her skills. <laughs> so, I mean, it has a lot of these elements that work, obviously, mm. in, in this world of, of fantasy. Um, I, the My one thing was that, Eric Heiser, who wrote all eight episodes and is is one of the executive producers, he did one of my favorite films uh, when it came out that year called The Arrival, which is about, uh, you know, it was it was an Oscar nominated movie with Amy. Oh, Adams Arrival, yeah, 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 with Amy Adams. And so, so and and so I I've always I like his work, you know, mm. and I and I know that he's capable of doing wonderful things. And so when I knew that he was attached to this, I was like, all right, well, this gives me a little bit of hope because after the first episode I was kind of curious I was like mm, should I continue on but I just because of him I, I press play to watch like more and yeah. and I think Jessie Mae Lee is just a really compelling lead she yeah. she doesn't actually have a big list of, of stuff that she's worked on um, her big thing is theater um, and, and she did I think she did something on, on stage with Gillian Anderson and, and you know like just she's just one of those people and I think the casting director saw her on stage and then suggested that she then audition for this and um, Lee like like saw her saw her audition tape and was like okay we found our Alina which oh, is even wow. better because originally she was not written as as a mixed race uh, character and, and and because of that Eric then changed it so they reference her mixed race they right you know, yeah because she that, like, she's being like yeah treated pretty badly because of the yeah. way she looks from the start which is an added 
uh, kind of element to the plot. Plus, she's got this kind of love interest from the oh, start. But then, yeah. you know, maybe another love interest is going to come along. You've got some Hunger Games vibes going on. <laughs> who's she going to pick? Oh, wow. Team who? Yeah, Team I, I, I love, yeah, I love all that. Chris, I'm curious, did your um, partner, what did she think of, um, as the only one of us who, she's not even here, but as the only one of us who, um, who has read the books, did she... I know she sort of said it was quite different, but did she enjoy it or was she like, nah, this is too, too removed? No, she loved it. Um, you know, we, we do like sort of um, big fantasy, big fantasy shows and that kind of thing anyway. Uh-huh. Um, but she really, really enjoyed it. She was the one at, you know, midnight, 1am going, oh, just... Should we just <laughs> no, it was that kind of, you know, because... It, a bit like with Mayor of Easttown, you, you do get a lot of like, oh, I need to just see what happens yeah. to the crows or oh, I just need to see what happens to Mal or you, it's got that kind of element to it where you kind of get invested in a in a particular um, plot point that you need to see what happens uh, in the next one. And yeah, she, she thought it was great. And um, it obviously does leave it on a cliffhanger. Mm, OK, well, they, we know that there are plans in place for a second series, but as always, it, of course, it depends on the response to the first. Lee Bardugo, who's who wrote the books has already told everyone to you know demand it on social media if you want a second series i suspect um because it's a very enjoyable show all three of us liked it and we've already talked about how it's sort of similar but better than a lot of the other shows like this out here i suspect no brainer it will go on and have a second series so um i suspect more shadow and bone to come um but yeah for now shadow and bone out on netflix from april 23rd Let's talk now about Cher and the Loneliest Elephant on uh, Paramount Plus in the States and the Smithsonian Channel uh, on, in the UK or on demand on My5. They need company, they need love and affection. Kavan was in a terrible state. It was absolutely shocking. What does it take to relocate a five-ton elephant across the entire continent of Asia? It's a huge challenge. Put together the right team. We had to get him out. So many people will remember. So last year, when we were mid in the midst of the pandemic and everything was crazy and no one was leaving their homes, let alone the country, then suddenly there were pictures of Cher in Islamabad waiting for a sad elephant. And it was the light relief uh, and the uplifting feel-good story we needed at that time. Uh, and this documentary, uh, it, it, it tells that story. It was, it was following Cher as she, uh, as she raced to Paris. Pakistan to, to save poor old Kavan um, after a kind of global social media campaign. And he, he's dubbed the world's loneliest elephant. And it is actually very sad. Poor Kavan. This uh, doc kind of yeah tells the story of how Cher got involved, what then happened and what happened to Kavan. Did they get him out of there in time and get him to his new sanctuary in time? I mean, no spoiler, but I think you'd have heard about it if, uh, if this hadn't <laughs> ended well. Um, <laughs> I mean, this is just a very kind of light and... Uh, you know, it, it kind of, what's the word I'm looking for? Kind of paint-by-numbers paint documentary. It's not doing anything uh, unusual. It's just telling the story as is. But uh, well, I think I because mean, it's got Cher and poor old Kavan, I think yeah, people all care. It was worth the, worth the watch base just to see Cher. Yeah, mm, just to see Cher I, singing I to the Cher. elephant. They bond yeah, exactly. over a little <laughs> sing-song of my way. I mean, come on. <laughs> yeah, I thought that was particularly bizarre. <laughs> Just Cher turning up in Pakistan to meet this elephant and start singing my way. 
I just thought... <laughs> you thought, poor Cavan, has he not been through enough? <laughs> yeah, exactly. He liked no, it, sorry, so... I do love you, Cher. I'm sorry. <laughs> yeah, don't just share. Cher yeah. and Dolly Parton are like icons. <laughs> you cannot say anything wrong about them on this show, so I'm just going to put that out there. Um, uh, but uh, it is... And you know when when the credits came up and it, it literally said an MTV production, I was like, "Oh, great!" Um, because it does skew a little bit young in terms of uh, documentaries of of this sort, and and they did a very quick uh, kind of background about like who Kavan is, and then oh my gosh, there's a social media campaign, and now we got to move it, and and it just jumps right into that. Um, it is interesting to see how how difficult it is to move a yeah the elephant. logistics of moving yeah, an elephant is actually crazy, quite. Actually. Fascinating, isn't yeah. it? And when they were talking about like if he gets out on the plane, I was like, oh my god, that's so true. If this elephant just goes on a rampage on the plane like that, all the people on the plane are in big trouble. Like I, I just never considered moving an elephant before. Um, that sounds like a Netflix. Yeah, song, like a Netflix <laughs> yeah. elephants on a plane. Really plane. Elephants on a plane. Magic has to be involved, and um, <laughs> yeah, it's going to be a mixed race cast. It's going to be amazing. Um, I'll tell you what, Samuel it's, Jackson leads it. it great. It's very pacey in a world where we're used to um you know documentary series where uh you know especially with like true crime where we see things really dragged out and very detailed kind of forensically examined this documentary races along and uh yeah before you know it shares there and uh and and Kavan's kind of getting getting rescued i think if you uh enjoyed the story at the time you might enjoy seeing this play out um but yeah it's it's probably not the most impressive doc you're you're going to watch uh anytime soon but it has Cher in it. And if you want to see her and the loneliest elephant go to his freedom, uh, watch it on Paramount Plus and Smithsonian Channel. And you do get to hear Believe three yes. times. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> so, so if anything else, you get to watch the show with the soundtrack of Cher's Believe. Um Believe is not played in the, our next show, Starstruck, which is on BBC Three, uh, starting April twenty fifth, and the, as a bulk. And then you can kind of watch it on BBC One the next day. They, they're like kind of doing some interesting kind of split kind of broadcast yeah. of, of this show. Hi, Jesse. How did you know my name? You said it a number of times since you came in here. There was actually a private conversation. You had sex. Yeah, boy. He's a famous actor. Loved you in the Avengers. I wasn't in there. And you're a little rat, nobody. Um, so, so this literally is a meet cute six episodes of like something that will never ever happen, but you know, but we just- all dream of. You dream of, and you know, and at the end of the day, you're like, let's just go with this. Um, it stars uh, New Zealand comedian Rose Matafeo, who I'm, I'm actually a, like a growing fan of. I've seen some of her stuff like last year, and I was like, she's pretty funny. Um, I guess she's been doing the rounds in the, in the UK kind of uh, circuit. She's been on a lot of your panel shows. Yeah, lots of our panel shows. People yeah. that watch things like it are 10 Cats, and uh, they'll recognize her definitely. Yeah, and, and she apparently won something at the Edinburgh Comedy Festival, and, and because of that, it just led to conversation of like hey what else do you got and she's like i got this meet cute you know um (laughs) she calls it the ultimate fan fiction series basically uh, a a drunken new year's eve hookup uh turns out the next day that um our 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 leading actress our leading lady played by rose matafiel hooked up with a guy who turns out to be an international film star i mean come on and she's just uh, the the least believable thing about this is that so rose is kind of like she's a bit struggling she's got a lot of sort of part-time jobs and is a bit kind of uh yeah kind of a bit in a little bit of a mess 
But she, one of her part-time jobs is she works in a cinema. So she works in a cinema. This guy is allegedly like a right. huge international film star and she doesn't recognise him. Well, you can camera. say that she was really drunk that night. <laughs> when she, she like, with, um <laughs> But I, I I think it like whatever doesn't make any sense because literally this is dragged out through six episodes. It's, it's like a year in the life of this this friendship turned hookup turned relationship question mark. Um, and um, yeah, in every episode you're just kind of like, ugh, another one of these moments where you're like this is never this is not real but yet it's filled with all these rom-com meet cutes you yeah. know and and uh it's got a cast that i you know nikesh patel plays plays the international film star they have a lot of cute chemistry um her her group of friends are also fun yeah. you know dorky people and and um and we we even have a little like mini driver a cameo in one of yeah. the episodes so so uh i have what- to confess at this stage stevie said like can, let's stick this on the list and i said oh, i don't think i'll have time to watch it he said come on the episodes are like 20 minutes long just do one i said okay last night i watched all six of them so <laughs> <laughs> yes. uh you yes. see i i watched i watched two i watched two of them <laughs> see and, uh, and it was yeah it was, i thought it was I thought it was good. A good addition to the list, actually. It made me very. It made me laugh out yeah, loud. Yeah, exactly. Made me laugh out which is very. Well. I, I thought you know sometimes you watch a TV show and the most you'll do is. <laughs> this made me genuinely laugh out loud, and I thought Rose Matafeo in particular was. Great. Yeah, I um, mean, she's so witty and like. Um, it's, I think it's just really well written. Yeah. Yeah, I, I well, she, she wrote it along with, uh, is it Alice Snedden, I think? Apologies mm-hmm. if I've got that wrong. But um, yeah, so uh, yeah, the two of them wrote it together. And uh, I think it really helps because I, I, I hope this isn't me being too rude, but it is, she's not an actress, Rose. She's a she's a comedian. And, and I think that great writing makes, makes her a better actress, basically. Right. I think she m- may have struggled performing someone else's work, if you know what I mean. I think what it is is she understands what she's able to do, and then she writes for that kind of performance. There's there's a scene in the first episode where during the hookup, and she's just like, "Are are, are we good? Are are, are we gonna, you know?" And he's like, "Are we good?" But they're already doing it, and it just was like it just like that whole kind of back and forth was hilarious. And there's um, also a bit where the she comes out of this international film star's flat, and obviously because he's like a big deal, there's loads of paps out there, and they start like taking pictures, and she's like, "Oh no!" And then they're like. Oh, it's just the cleaner, and it is so funny that I think that is what kind of dragged me in for the rest of it. Because right. I was cracking up. It's very, it's very well observed. It's very, um, yeah, it's very funny. It's very light. And if you've got any, if any part of you likes that, will they, won't they dynamic, uh, which I very much do. Um, yeah, this will be right up your street. And with these teeny tiny episodes, you just get through it. Like you zip that. through. I mean, I finished all six like very quickly, and and that's why I was like, guys, it's only twenty two minutes. Trust me, <laughs> it's really good, and yeah. I'm glad uh, both of you enjoyed it. Um, all this tells me is that BBC Three, because we know that it's coming back as a proper channel soon, yeah. right? It's like, and so the fact that they've they've continued to kind of commission female voices and having female leads and stuff, I, I hope this is just going to be more of that, like moving forward. You know, as we know, BBC Three uh, was the one that kind of discovered, um, uh, you know, Phoebe Phoebe Waller Bridge and Michaela Cole um, from from I May Destroy You. And so, if they're on this run of like really finding great female voices, I, I'm very happy that they're coming back as a as a as a network again, a yeah. proper network. Yeah, I think they've just they've just proved yeah that they that they really do kind of have a, an important place in in the sort of TV market as it were, and I'm I'm glad that they're coming back as well. I thought it was odd when um, when it was got rid of, so it's it's a relief 
that it's coming back and this is um yeah well worth a watch <laughs> either have a big old binge on iPlayer or I don't imagine how you could eke it out week by week but um yeah <laughs> go for it uh so Starstruck is out on BBC3 from the 25th of April and also BBC One at complicated times and dates. Just have a look on iPlayer and find it. <laughs> Just watch it on iPlayer. Just do the binge. It. Just do, it on, do the binge. Don't even... <laughs> so next week, we will, of course, debrief after the Oscars. And we're going to talk about the new Sky One show, Intergalactic, as well as hearing from one of its stars, Line of Duties, Craig Parkinson. Did I manage to squeeze any Line of Duty spoilers out of him? Spoiler, no, I did not. But we did talk about that as well. So, <laughs> And uh, uh, yeah, we will uh, we will revisit Line of Duty at some point as well um, because whew, there's a lot going on there, isn't there? Um, in the um, in the meantime, do email us backstage at sky.uk. We really do genuinely love to hear from you, um, and please subscribe in uh, in your podcast app, and then we'll uh, we'll just drop into your podcast each week. You won't even have to search for us. And, and you know, lovely. congratulations, Chris! You did your first episode. We look forward to having you join us more often uh, in, in, in upcoming Thank things. You. And we're going to keep on giving you stuff that you probably don't really want. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> so it's like, have fun. You know? we'll find another no, share and it sad was, elephant documentary yeah, for you. It will stop me binging the office. <laughs> oh, yeah. So you know. Anything you want to give me, you can try and get an office reference into every podcast you join us on. (laughs) (laughs) Um, Very, yeah, thank you ever so much, Chris, and we'll speak again soon. Bye. 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 Shipbuilding is a key part of Britain's industrial history. The size of ships grew during the 19th century as the materials used to make them move from wood to iron and then to steel, with shipyards in the northeast of England and Scotland among the big players in the global market. My name is John Roundtree and I work in shipbuilding most of my life as a shipwright. John used to work in Hartlepool, which was once well known for its shipyards. It's the historic quay now, and the oldest floating warship is in the dry dock there. It's called the HMS Trincomalee, and that's the dock. That's the area that I worked in. There was new ships being built and ships being repaired in the dry docks. But the industry declined as their modernisation saw much of the work go elsewhere by the 1960s. Foreign people started to build ships cheaper. Japan started the, the ball rolling, I think. We used to be one of the biggest shipbuilders in the world. I think what started all was welding from rivets. I mean, when you have, to have millions of rivets in a ship, and each, all the holes had to match up before the rivet would go in. Once Welton came along, they'd done away with all that and a lot of the skill was lost. When I moved from Hartlepool to the Tees, I worked for Southbank Shipyard and then I worked at Avonale Shipyard and the, they all eventually closed, just one after the other. I think a lot of people, especially like some platers and Welders got working on different sorts of work, you know. 
chemical works and nuclear works and things like that. John has fond memories of his time in Hartlepool. Well, I thought it was a very happy place to be, actually. There was always a laugh and a joke going on. One thing that did stick in my mind, everybody went to work on bikes them days. Coming down the road to the shipyards and the engine works on the morning, half past seven, it was just continuous. The full two sides of the road with bikes. It couldn't go the other way. It was one-way traffic. On a lunchtime and a nighttime, was one-way traffic the other way. I remember one morning, I used to get the bus over from Edland, and I was walking down, all the bikes were going down, and it was black ice. And them days, everybody took a can of tea to work on the handlebars of the bike, and somebody slipped down, the bike went down, and then... Oh, must have been 50 or 60 bikes all in a heap. As I looked down, the gutter was running about two inches deep in hot tea. So that was rather strange. It was a good upbringing. Apprentices were well looked after. We had our own apprentice supervisor who used to look after us. Any problems we had, we could go to him. He was a nice guy sit down and talk to him if you had any problems. William Grays looked after their apprentices and made sure they got a good apprenticeship. In fact, if they saved your time at Grays or Richardson Westgarth for being engineering, you'd go anywhere in the world. Well, people get surprised when they come to Hartlepool. They think it's like a backwater, but it's, it's quite a nice place to live. I don't know, compared to other places. But we've got the country and we've got the seaside. It gets forgotten by government a bit, I think. I mean, Hartlepool was a... There was a lot of ship owners lived in Hartlepool. I mean, Sir William Gray lived in the town. The town was a very rich town. Till everything went down to London. I think it was about five or six ship owners lived in the town. With numerous ships. There's one good thing they do. They, they built a nice marina in the docks that used to use offload ships and whatever. It was a big timber port as well. So when that sort of died away, they built a nice marina. So people enjoy that. The English town is situated on the northeast coast, 17 miles southeast of Durham and 12 miles northeast of Stockton on Tees. But while it may be around 260 miles north of the politics of Westminster, Hartlepool could perhaps be the most important in the May elections for the main parties. But why? So will it be choppy waters for Labour? Will the Tories see a tidal wave of support? Or will voters set sail? in search of something else. Welcome to the Sky News Daily Podcast with me, Dermot Murnahan, as we examine the story beyond the headline. Hartlepool is just about the worst place where a nervous political party can find itself with a challenge because it's on the northeastern tip of England. It has a certain degree of political notoriety. People have heard of Hartlepool as a political place. 
it has huge independence of mind and spirit. It's done things differently for decades. It doesn't go with the flow, even the flow of the local Tees Valley politics that we've seen over the last few years. My name's Sam Coates. I'm the deputy political editor of Sky News. And in the 16-odd years I've been covering politics, I've done dozens of by-elections. It is perhaps best known as a political centre for being the home for so many years, from 1992, of Peter Mandelson, Lord Mandelson. He was there over a, a decade as the local MP for this rugged... Uh, independent, spirited, almost sort of outcrop when you look at the geography. It, uh, it's bound as an old town and a new town. Under its current configuration, it has never had a Conservative MP and was known for being a bastion of new Labour in northern traditional Labour heartlands that so often had elected more traditional Labour types. And in terms of the the history, particularly the industrial history, like so many towns, formerly shipbuilding was one of the big features of it. And that, I suppose, even by the time Peter Mandelson got there, that had gone. Yes, and uh, energy production, there's a nuclear power plant in the region as well. And I think there's a big strategic question for the Northeast. And I think this is particularly for Hartlepudlians themselves, which is, we know a lot about the past. It was an industrial place. There was a port. The question is, as heavy industry starts to wind down, is there a role for future investment in industry or are we looking at effectively turning industrial jobs of the past into service jobs of the future? How much do places like Hartlepool need to change their makeup, their DNA, and how painful is that transition? And that transition there in that northeastern tip of England mirrors questions seen all over the country. But in Hartlepool, partly because of its geography, partly because of its distance, partly because of its lack of connectedness to many of the mainline train and rail networks, they feel just a little bit left out of the future. I just feel like Hartlepool's left behind, you know. We want something. We want something to live in Hartlepool. Bring Hartlepool back to where it was years and years ago. Left out of the spoils, helping particularly the rest of the northeast uh, to prosperity and helping manage this transition between the past and the future. And just as we paint a picture of Hartlepool, I'm just scrolling down TripAdvisor's top things to do in Hartlepool. Uh, I know you've been up there, Sam. So did you? Did you have time? I know how hard you work for us. Um, did you get to see the HMS Trincomalee? Did you go to the National Museum of the Royal Navy in Hartlepool, Seaton Carew Beach, or I know this would have been your favourite, Tweddle Children's Animal Farm, where I suspect you can feed goats and stroke sheep. What I did do was stand on the coastal path, incredibly cold watching people run up and down and up and down in what must have been minus three, underlining the kind of rugged individualism, and then the kids on their bikes doing wheelies up and down and up and down, eyeing suspiciously the camera uh, that I was there with. And I think that there's a certain spirit that you detect in Hartlepool that we saw when we went to the local radio station to talk about their perceptions of the local politics. 
Well, there we go. We're back uh, with Sam Coates uh, from Sky News, the deputy political editor. Chris Lloyd from the Northern Echo, the chief feature writer as well. Uh, three talented minds at Radio Hartlepool. Uh, Hartlepool has, uh, has quite a few local concerns that it wants addressing. I mean, there's two parts to the new MP's uh, position. There's the local element and obviously the national element, what he or she can bring nationally uh, to the table. Chris Lloyd from the Northern Echo, you're job title is chief feature writer but your job is to sniff the wind can you just explain to people who haven't got their head in Hartlepool politics as to what we're looking at here well Hartlepool is a, a unique sort of a place it's a very interesting mindset of the Hartlepoolian a very independent mindset a 69.5% Brexit to leave one of the highest areas in the country and of course it is famously the place that elected a, a monkey as mayor in 2002 just brilliantly independent yet at the 20 2019 general election, it didn't fall from Labour to the Conservatives, and it really should have done. There was a kind of tidal wave of uh, Toryism that swept down the Tees Valley uh, from Redcar through Sedgefield, Stockton, Darlington to Bishop Auckland, North West Durham, all traditional Labour seats that um, fell Conservative in Bishop Auckland's case for the first time since 1885. So huge historic change, and yet that tidal wave lapped at the feet of Hartlepool, but it didn't. Um, managed to fall. So this election is going to tell us whether that tidal wave is still sweeping through the country or whether um, Keir Starmer and the new look Labour, Jeremy Corbyn, was desperately unpopular here in the North East, whether that new look Labour has managed to stem that tide. There's a sense that there they are on that northeastern coast, slightly separate, slightly alone, slightly out of contact and slightly left behind. And I think the question for Hartlepudlians generally and the question for Hartlepudlians on May the 6th was and will be, we've been left behind, what can you do for us? A bit more about the uh, political history, Peter Mandelson as uh, new Labour representative uh, there. Just flesh out, though, the, the political background to Hartlepool. It's been Labour since the boundaries in Hartlepool were drawn up as they were in the 1970s. Hartlepool as a town hasn't had a Conservative MP since before then, since the 1960s. But what you've seen, along with this independence of spirit that led them to elect a man posing as a monkey through much of the 2000s and into the 2010s, as a mayor in the region, that mayoral post, by the way, now, abolished. What you've been seeing more recently since 2015 is a gradual crumbling of that historic link with the Labour Party. And it there are representatives for the Westminster Parliament, but that's not the only bit of democracy in Hartlepool. Three tiers. You've got the local council that's drifted out of Labour's control. You've got the parliamentary seat, which is now up for grabs, and all of the surrounding seats have been turning blue they did in 2019. We'll come to that in a moment. And then you've got this really interesting phenomena, which is that Hartlepool is part of the Tees Valley region, which means that it's got one of these new mayoralties, slightly less well known than the West Midlands mayor, Tory Andy Street, the Greater Manchester mayor, Andy Burnham. But there is one in the Tees Valley. It's called Ben Houchin. He covers Hartlepool just as he covers Stockton and Darlington and other parts of that region. And he is a Tory as well. So you have Tories representing a the sort of region, Tories and uh, independents and Labour and others represented on the council, an independent mayor who in the dim and distant past was a conservative himself. So you can see the, the sort of the shift there. And now you've got this seat, the Westminster seat, up for grabs. Wow. And why this seat is fascinating 
is because in the 2019 general election, there was a tidal wave of blue through this When part. you and I were working that night, we, we were, I mean, our jaws were on the floor. Conservative candidate, 18,000. The Conservative Party candidate, 27,000. Yeah! The Conservative Party candidate, 20,900. Yeah! Red car, it was Stockton South, uh, Darlington. You looked at these seats, many of which had never been Conservative, falling blue. And that blue tide stopped at the boundaries of Hartlepool. So there's one red dot on the coast surrounded by blue. Now, the reason that there is that red dot is fascinating. And it's there in the numbers of what happened that night and into the morning. And that is because... The Labour Party came out top just ahead of the Conservative Party by a couple of thousand votes, just ahead of the Brexit Party, which had one of its arguably its second most high profile figure, Richard Tice, standing in that seat. And what he did was he in this election that for many people in the northeast was partly about Jeremy Corbyn, partly about Brexit. Brexit voters had two different places to go in places like Hartlepool. And with a high-profile, prominent figure from the Brexit party standing in Hartlepool, he split the vote. So the Brexit-supporting vote either went to the Conservatives or it went to the Brexit party, but it didn't unite behind one of them. And that split that sort of pool, and that allowed Labour to come up through the middle. Now, today, the Brexit party is no longer. It has morphed into something called the Reform Party, and the Reform Party is standing in this election. But you've got to wonder how easy it will be for voters to switch in large numbers from a what I would hedge would be a nationally recognised brand led by Nigel Farage into something more of a fledging for those voters to follow all the way through to a fledging political party where Richard Tice isn't standing. That's got a new uh, name and it hasn't got the same kind of national profile or agenda that it had in 2019. So the question on the ballot paper is... If the Brexit party isn't standing the same way as last time, are all those votes that went to the Brexit party going to go to the Tories, not Labour, and the Tories will take this seat? And that is the question that we will find out on May the 6th. And that is the question for you. And it's, I suppose another way of looking at it is the character of all those Brexit votes, just how live an issue it was back in 2019. It was the Brexit election, get Brexit done, oven ready deal. If those Brexit voters were mainly former Labour voters, Labour hoping that they'll go back to them or at least split evenly between them. And if all things stayed the same, then they'd still get across the line. What, what did you find out about the, the character in particular of those those Brexit party voters? I think in a sense, that's a difficult, maybe even a sort of false question, because voters aren't Brexit voters in reality. They're human beings that have observed that Brexit has now been done and have also spent the better part of 14 months struggling through a pandemic and will have very strong views about how the town and constituency of Hartlepool uh, has evolved down the years. So I'm not going to sit here and tell you that Brexit voters are going to break two to one to the Tories. It's impossible to say that. What I do think you detect is that the essay question has moved on. Yes, there is a little bit of residual feeling around Brexit, which the Conservatives are trying to mine as hard as they can, because the Labour candidate, Paul Williams, did in the past back a second referendum. And the Tories seem pretty determined to remind 
every voter coming of that. How much salience that issue has, it's hard to say, but it, you know, getting Brexit done is no longer top of people's agenda because in pretty much any definition it's been done. I think the question on May the 6th will be the much more eternal Hartlepudlian and political question, which is what can the various candidates yeah. do for us? And the reason that they liked, as far as I could tell, talking to people in the town, the reason they liked Peter Mandelson is that, you know, when he was a cabinet minister, when he was an advisor to Neil Kinnock, when he was working alongside Tony Blair, the answer was, well, actually quite a lot. Thank you very much indeed. That, you know, they had national strategies for neighbourhood renewal in 1997. And you bet your bottom dollar that places like Hartlepool benefited from that back in those days. But the question is now... Does the town want the kind of investment, particularly to create jobs, which is the calling card bluntly of the Conservative candidate and campaign? Or does it want investment in public services, the local hospital, Paul Williams being a doctor, of the sort that Labour is trying to, you know, focus its campaign on? Coming up, just how significant is what happens in Hartlepool on May the 6th? I mean, it's hugely significant for both parties. Keir Starmer, of course, as the well, year-old leader, but his first big battle there. And Boris Johnson, I mean, you know, if any party of government wins a by-election while it's in power, it's pretty unusual. So I've been talking today to people around Keir Starmer and their expectation management for that is what it is, is not a prediction. It's what they want us to think and say on air, not what they privately believe. But their expectation management is extraordinarily gloomy. They don't think they'll win it. That's where they're setting it now. They say, you know, without the Brexit party, we would have lost last time. The Brexit party's gone. So you've got to look at the numbers in, in that way. But you're right. For a party of government to be picking up seats 11 years after a Conservative entered Downing Street. I mean, it has actually happened. Happened in 2018, I think it was, in Theresa May's time, when the Conservative Party picked up a seat from uh, Labour. I think the significance of this is bigger than just that. The significance is that Keir Starmer's number one job is to repair the damage in the Red Wall that we saw on that night in December in 2019. And this is the first test of it. And if things are getting worse in the Red Wall for Keir Starmer, then he's got a lot of incredibly difficult questions. And whilst at this set of elections on May the 6th, which have Scotland and Wales and mayoralties and councils and the London Assembly all rolled into one, none of those are parliamentary seats. Only Hartlepool is genuinely representative of the contest that decides who is the next prime minister of this country. And if Labour is going backwards, for whatever reason, even if the numbers are sort of uh, much more challenging because of the impact of the Brexit party, that is nevertheless a big problem for Keir Starmer. It also, by the way, little uh, little thing that will set the tone and the narrative and the debate is the, pretty much the only count, I think, that's happening on the Thursday night. And so all of the results for Scotland and Wales and, and English counties will come in on Friday and Saturday and Sunday and maybe even into Monday. That's where we might end up discovering the makeup of the Scottish Parliament and start discussing the independence of the United Kingdom if the SNP are in charge and that issue's back on the agenda. 
But Hartlepool looks as if it's going to be the place that comes in fast and first with a result. So we'll be spending a lot of time talking about that, quite possibly cheering Keir Starmer up, quite possibly, you know, forcing a huge amount of questions from the left and the right of his party if he hasn't uh, picked up this seat. But but there's going to be space and time to focus on just that on May the 7th. Well, thank you for that, Sam, setting the scene very nicely. And thank you very much indeed for getting through a discussion about Hartlepool without mentioning uh, guacamole. And that's it for today. You can follow the May elections on Sky News and across our digital channels. Thanks for listening to this episode of the Sky News Daily Podcast, hosted by me, Dermot Murnahan, and produced by Annie Joyce, along with Anna Bates, Isla Glaister and Nellie Stefanova. If you've enjoyed this podcast, you can follow us in the usual places and leave a review while you're there. Hi, I'm Sophie Ridge, and if you enjoyed this Sky News podcast, you might also like mine. Welcome to Sophie Ridge on Sunday. You reportedly said, business. My words have been totally taken out of context. Okay, go on, tell us the context. I'll tell you. What does that mean? We will work with the government, but we also will ask the difficult, searching questions. Agenda-setting, big interviews. An interesting interview, I thought, with Dominic Raab. Well, I mean, I would say that when I did it. And my take on the political stories that matter to you. Some soul-searching, and I think needs to go on for many of us. The Sophie Ridge on Sunday podcast. Available every Sunday from, well, wherever you found this from. Sign up for the newsletter so you never miss an update. I'm most excited to see Zach Wilson because I heard a lot about him, like, as the draft approaches, right? He's on sort of on your radar, but it reminded me of Roethlisberger when Eli and Philip Rivers were coming out. And all the, then later in the season, you start hearing more and more about Roethlisberger. Let me look at him. Let me check him out. Oh, yeah, you can see why people like him. He's going ahead of Justin Fields. Are people crazy? And then so I started, you know, like, like you mentioned the other day, Stephen A., you go on YouTube, you start watching stuff, and oh, my God, <laughs> this dude, this dude is just the eyeball test is crazy. The off-platform stuff, the accuracy, the way he makes those throws, the way he escapes pressure, reads defenses. Guys, Trevor Lawrence is going to be great, everyone supposes. And Justin Fields, I'm curious to see how he does. And Trey Lance, maybe a year or two down the road. And what about Mac Jones and everything he's saying about reading defense? But Zach Wilson is the dude that I want to see. And there are two parts to it, guys. There's what the athlete brings, and I want to see it. I- I've been wrong about some guys. Sam Bradford, I thought would be great. I saw him do some great things in college. Nope. And there are other guys you're right about. You go, yeah, of course, you could see that coming. So I want to know about Zach Wilson. But the other side of it is, where are all these guys going? Zach Wilson is going to New York. He's going to the Jets. The, I mean, this is, this is not the heritage team in town, but they have a rabid fan base. They haven't been good in a long time. This is the team of Joe Namath. When was the last time they had a great quarterback in New York? And, and by the way, Sam, Sam Darnold was supposed to be It didn't quite happen. There are two sides of it, the athlete and the market and the team, and I'm excited for all of it. Well, I think the operative word is excited. You know, if you're intrigued, I like your selection. But excited, I want to see Trevor Lawrence. They're talking about this brother the way they talked about Peyton Manning. 
they're talking about this brother the way they talked about Andrew Luck and some of the great, great quarterbacks that we've ever seen in NFL history. That is the expectation. So because of that, I want to see what he brings to this level. You got to remember, we've seen him in big-time competition. Please don't get me wrong, guys. And, Marcus, I think you can appreciate where I'm, where I'm about to come from with this. Trevor Lawrence has played against stiff competition. Make no mistake about that, and I'm not trying to knock it. But I don't think anybody would accuse the ACC of being the SEC. You know, and so when I look at it from that perspective, I just think what Clemson brings to the table, and certainly they've been in the national college football playoffs, and they've had stiff competition, and we've seen enough from from, from Trevor Lawrence to know he is absolutely positively the real deal, at least on the collegiate level, and I believe on the pro level, but I still want to see it on this level, where week in, week out, you're going up against NFL competition as opposed to slaughtering some lesser competition, which I think that he's done in his career as well as as performing against big-time competition. But the other part about it that I'm excited about is because Urban Meyer is his coach. And Urban Meyer, one of the great, Mm -hmm. phenomenal coaches we've ever seen in college football history, is taking his first dab, his first dibs at an NFL job. And the fact that, that, that Urban Meyer is your coach and just like it's your rookie year in the NFL, it's his rookie year in the NFL, as a head coach, it's also intriguing. Obviously, they not, you know, we haven't seen much from their receivers. I think Chenault was their leader receiver. He only had about 58 receptions or what have you. So they've got to upgrade from the receiving core standpoint. But that still doesn't eradicate the fact that you want to see some you want to see what Trevor Lawrence brings to the table, especially with Urban Meyer as coach. I'm most excited about seeing that amongst the quarterbacks. Wait. Well, y'all done heard me. Y'all know who I'm most excited about seeing. Justin Fields, man. Like, we've been having this conversation, asking questions about why is he not the second-rated quarterback in this draft, not that much of a degree of separation between him and Trevor Lawrence. And you look at everything that's been transpiring leading up to this, and I'm just thinking in my mind, are we going to have another Deshaun Watson situation? Are these teams going to pass on him because they've convinced themselves that one or the other guys are better, and he falls to a team? and then he goes on to have a tremendous amount of success. He's a no-brainer, no-question guy. I'm most excited to see that. Because, look, Justin Fields, as much as I've lamented about how good he is, he has some ways to go in order to be a professional quarterback, in order to have the stay, the staying power, in order to have the consistency, in order to be the guy that we all believe he can be when you look at what he's done on film and from an athletic standpoint. So when he gets whatever, wherever he's drafted, outside of number three, if it's lower, and then you start to see Justin Fields get, get down and down and ends up on a team that's probably going to be middle of the pack or pretty good, I'm going to be excited to see what he Marcus. does for that football team. And I understand, I understand that Justin Fields has been talked about as a range of being up there at number three or as low as going down to 10, 12, some team jumping up to get him. But I'm telling y'all right now, there will be a conversation in two years or, or three years where we say, how did they miss on Justin Fields yeah. if he falls in this draft? Yeah, so the Bears would be nuts not to go, jump up and grab him if they could. But, Marcus, yeah. I, have a, I have a question for you. When my eyeballs are on Zach Wilson, like there are some dudes who are really good, big, strong arms, really excellent players. Josh Allen comes to mind. Dak Prescott comes to mind. But there are other dudes that when my eyes are on them, give me a different feeling. Mahomes, obviously. Mm -hmm. Rodgers, obviously. Also, Justin Herbert. 
a different kind of arm talent for me, even than Allen or Prescott. Maybe I'm wrong about that. I'm talking about the impression I get. When I watch all these guys, the one who gives me that feeling is Zach Wilson. Am I imagining that, or does he have a different kind of, of talent? No, Max, you're not imagining that. It's a different kind of talent, but here's the thing, man. Like, we now have this perception of what jumps off the page, and Zach Wilson fits all of that. The, you know, you hear these words off-platform off throws, and he has the ability to throw across his body. The one thing that stands out about Zach Wilson when we breaking this thing down in general terms, when you watch him play football, what we attribute to all of these other quarterbacks that we talk about that are fascinating and, and top of their game, they are playmakers. They figure out how to get themselves out of bad situations. They raise the level of the guys around him. His skill set lends itself to him helping guys elevate their game. Now, here's the caveat. And we have to talk about this because he went to BYU. This is not the cast dispersions on quarterbacks that come from lower-tier schools. Does that translate? And you yeah. won't find that out <laughs> until he plays. Thanks for watching ESPN on YouTube. For live streaming sports and premium content, subscribe to ESPN+. Commercial free. Please follow us on Facebook and subscribe via iTunes. For the first time, the Biden administration has granted access inside a Department of Homeland Security facility processing asylum seekers at the southern border. And CBS News got an exclusive look. This facility in Brownsville, Texas, is part of an effort to better house asylum seekers arriving on U.S. soil. President Biden campaigned on rolling back the Trump administration's hardline immigration agenda, including the so-called Remain in Mexico policy, which has kept more than 70,000 migrants there in limbo as they wait for cases to be processed in the U.S. CBS News immigration reporter Camila Montoya-Gavez is, is in Texas at the Hildago port of entry on the southern border, and he joins us now. Uh, so, Camilo, uh, describe to us what the process is like on the ground there for those waiting for asylum and what kind of risks they face. Good morning, Vlad and Anne-Marie. The Biden administration so far has allowed 9,000 asylum seekers who were previously required to wait in Mexico under the Trump administration to enter the U.S. and has allowed them to continue their immigration proceedings here on American soil. We were granted exclusive access uh, to a facility in Brownsville, Texas, to witness how this process works firsthand. We saw a group of about 20 asylum seekers, including families with young children, enter a DHS facility in Brownsville, Texas. They were processed uh, by metric screenings were conducted on them. Uh, their bags were checked. Uh, they were COVID-19 tested in Mexico, so they had to test negative before entering the U.S. And they were released after a few minutes into the U.S. Many of them have already boarded a plane to their respective destinations in the U.S., like Miami, New York, uh, L.A., and other communities uh, with large populations of immigrants. And this is part, again, of a broader Biden administration effort to slowly expand access to asylum at the U.S.-Mexico border, which, as we have discussed in multiple uh, locations was severely restricted by the Trump administration. But it is in very important to note, uh, Anne-Marie and Blad, that this only benefits asylum seekers with pending cases. It does not benefit new arrivals. Most families and adults are still being expelled back to Mexico under a Trump-era public health order known as Title 42.
Thanks for that clarification, um, Camilo. So I don't know if this is the same um, family that we're talking about here, because we have some sound. You spoke to a family who was separated at the border while seeking asylum about just what it has been like and what it was like to finally be allowed to enter the U United States and be reunited. I want to play some of that conversation. It's indescribable. It was a very strong feeling. I spent two days with headaches. I would look at him every day and tell him I couldn't believe that he was here. It was an indescribable feeling. When I saw the baby and held her, I still can't believe it. Yes, it was beautiful. All right, so talk to us about their story and just how often families at the border go through similar experiences. Yes, yeah, so Diana and Lazaro and Marie are two political dissidents from Cuba. They fled government persecution there in 2019 and tried to seek asylum at the U.S.-Mexico border. But Diana, who was pregnant at the, at the time, was granted humanitarian parole and admitted into the U.S. However, Lazaro was sent back to Mexico under the Trump era Remain in Mexico policy, so the family was effectively separated by the U.S. government. Lazaro had to spend more than a year in a dangerous Mexican border city, and he missed the birth of their child, Ashley. Uh, and during this time, uh, Diana was diagnosed with postpartum depression, and the separation took a heavy emotional toll on the entire family. Family. Uh, but now, uh, Lazaro has benefited from this program, from this Biden administration program of, sl of slowly letting some of these asylum seekers into the U.S., and he was finally able to reunite with Ashley and Diana in March, and the family's now together while they continue their asylum case here in the U.S. Camilla, the family you spoke to also discussed how the U.S. elections and former President Trump's policies impacted them directly. Here's what they told you. You felt your life could be changed by this election. Sentiste que tu vida podía cambiar dependiendo en qué pasaba con esta elección. Sí, sí, como no, porque sé que muchos me van a odiar por. I know many will hate me for saying this, but with President Donald Trump, there were no opportunities for immigrants. De hecho, fue el que puso. In fact, he's the one who started Remain in Mexico. He separated thousands of families and thousands of children. So as President Biden gets ready to mark his first 100 days in office this week, as you know, he'll be making his first uh, address to a joint session of Congress today. Uh, where does the administration stand on rolling back some of those Trump-era policies and the president's promise of a more, what they call the administration, a humane immigration policy? Yeah, well, President Trump, as you know, Vlad, made numerous changes to the U.S. immigration system, big and small changes. According to one estimate, uh, the Trump administration made more than a thousand changes to the U.S. immigration system. And so the Biden administration uh, came into office pledging to implement a more humane uh, and welcoming policy toward refugees and asylum seekers to expand legal immigration and to propose the legalization of people here who have been living for years but who currently do not have legal status in the country such as farm workers uh, and children uh, who came to this country um, as minors, um, dreamers, uh, immigrants who came to this country as children, rather. And so now we know that the Biden administration has taken several steps to lift some of these Trump-era restrictions, including the public charge restrictions on green cards, pandemic-era restrictions on immigrant visas. But as we have discussed previously, uh, the Biden administration has kept some Trump-era policies, including uh, the policy of turning back most migrants 
and asylum seekers under this Title 40, uh, 42 public health order, and it has yet to fulfill several campaign promises like discontinuing for-profit immigration detention and restoring asylum protections for victims of gang and domestic violence. I spoke to a White House official yesterday. Uh, the official told us uh, that, you know, it takes time to reverse all of these changes and that just because some changes were not made during the first 100 days does not mean uh, that the administration will not eventually tackle them in the future. Um, President Biden has nominated Texas Sheriff Ed Gonzalez to lead the U.S. Immigration and Customs Enforcement as its director. This comes at a critical time for the agency, which is under fierce criticism from progressives. What can you tell us about this pick? Yeah, so Ed Gonzalez is currently the sheriff at uh, Harris County, uh, Texas. That's the most populous county in the state. And this is the second law enforcement official, Anne Marie Blatt, that President Biden has tapped to lead an immigration enforcement agency. Uh, earlier this year, he announced that he was tapping Chris Magnus, the current chief, uh, police chief, rather, in Tucson, Arizona, uh, to lead Customs and Border Protection, the agency that runs facilities just like this one. Uh, and so he is tapping local law enforcement to oversee these agencies uh, whose works uh, has become uh, polarized, especially during the Trump administration. Remember that ICE oversees uh, deportations, immigration arrests, uh, things that have become uh, very uh, polarizing uh, among Democratic circles, uh, including uh, among some progressives who have actually advocated for the abolishment of ICE. So he will have to oversee all of these competing interests. On one hand, progressives will call on the agency to arrest and deport less people, but conservatives uh, will complain about the agency not fully enforcing immigration law and will call on them to deport and arrest uh, more immigrants. So this is definitely a formidable task uh, that Mr. Gonzalez will face if confirmed by the Senate. Yeah, indeed, it's quite a balancing act. Um, Camillo, thank you. Thank you. If you enjoyed this episode, please leave us a review on iTunes. Same place next week. And that's it for this week's episode. Add us to your podcatcher or on iTunes now so that you can make sure you never miss out on another second of our wonderful podcast. We would hate for you to miss out. Have a great week, everyone. Please be advised that this podcast is meant for educational and informational purposes only and is in no way a replacement for legal or medical advice. The opinions contained within are solely those of the interviewers and interviewees and should be received as so. Those seeking help or advice are encouraged to obtain professional legal and medical services.